Hello and welcome to Coffee and Code. I'm your host, Ashley Coffee. Coffee and Code is your weekly rundown for the latest top tech news from around the world delivered every Wednesday. On this show, you'll find a mix of the latest news in the tech world, including privacy, infosec, startups, and more, including interviews with experts, innovators, and practical everyday tech tips to level up your life. Subscribe to Coffee and Code to be notified when new episodes go live. You can also find me on Twitter at AshleyCoffee underscore, that's A-S-H-L-E-Y-C-O-F-F-E-Y underscore, and on Instagram at AshleyRCoffee89. Thanks for listening, and welcome to Coffee and Code. Today, I'll be covering the Federal Trade Commission's lawsuit filed today against Facebook for illegal monopolization, Google CEO Sundar Pichai's response to the exit of its top AI ethics scientist, Dr. Timit Gebru, and Apple's new screen recognition feature that labels buttons and UI features for blind users using artificial intelligence and machine learning. Let's dive in. The Federal Trade Commission, in coalition with 46 state AGs plus Guam and D.C., sues Facebook, alleging Instagram and WhatsApp acquisitions were used to stifle competition. The Federal Trade Commission today sued Facebook, alleging that the company is illegally maintaining its personal social networking monopoly through a years-long course of anti-competitive conduct. Following a lengthy investigation in cooperation with a coalition of attorneys general of 46 states, the District of Columbia, and Guam, the complaint alleges that Facebook has engaged in a systematic strategy including its 2012 acquisition of up-and-coming rival Instagram, its 2014 acquisition of the mobile messaging app WhatsApp, and the imposition of anti-competitive conditions on software developers to eliminate threats to its monopoly. The FTC claims that this course of conduct harms competition, leaves consumers with few choices for personal social networking, and deprives advertisers of the benefits of competition. The FTC is seeking a permanent injunction in federal court that could, among other things, require divestitures of assets, including Instagram and WhatsApp, prohibit Facebook from imposing anti-competitive conditions on software developers, and require Facebook to seek prior notice and approval for future mergers and acquisitions. Quote, Personal social networking is central to the lives of millions of Americans, said Ian Connor, director of the FTC's Bureau of Competition. Quote, Facebook's actions to entrench and maintain its monopoly deny consumers the benefits of competition. Our aim is to roll back Facebook's anti-competitive conduct and restore competition so that innovation and free competition can thrive, end quote. According to the FTC's complaint, 
Facebook is the world's dominant personal social networking service and has monopoly power and a market for personal social networking services. This unmatched position has provided Facebook with staggering profits. Last year alone, Facebook generated revenues of more than $70 billion and profits of more than $18.5 billion. According to the FTC's complaint, Facebook targeted potential competitive threats to its dominance. Instagram, a rapidly growing startup, emerged at a critical time in personal social networking competition when users of personal social networking services were migrating from desktop computers to smartphones and when consumers were increasingly embracing photo sharing. The complaint alleges that Facebook executives, including CEO Mark Zuckerberg, quickly recognized that Instagram was a vibrant and innovative personal social network and an existential threat to Facebook's monopoly power. The complaint alleges that Facebook initially tried to compete with Instagram on the merits by improving its own offerings, but Facebook ultimately chose to buy Instagram rather than compete with it. Facebook's acquisition of Instagram for $1 billion in April 2012 allegedly both neutralizes the direct threat posed by Instagram and makes it more difficult for another personal social networking competitor to gain scale. Around the same time, according to the complaint, Facebook perceived that, quote, over-the-top mobile messaging apps also presented a serious threat to Facebook's monopoly power. In particular, the complaint alleges that Facebook's leadership understood and feared that a successful mobile messaging app could enter the personal social networking market either by adding new features or by spinning off a standalone personal social networking app. The complaint alleges that by 2012, WhatsApp had emerged as the clear global category leader in mobile messaging. Again, according to the complaint, Facebook chose to buy an emerging threat rather than compete and announced an agreement in February of 2014 to acquire WhatsApp for $19 billion. Facebook's acquisition of WhatsApp allegedly both neutralizes the prospect that WhatsApp itself might threaten Facebook's personal social networking monopoly and ensures that any future threat will have a more difficult time gaining scale in mobile messaging. The complaint also alleges that Facebook, over many years, has imposed anti-competitive conditions on third-party software developers' access to valuable interconnections to its platform, such as the application programming interfaces, also known as APIs, that follow the developers' apps to interface with Facebook. In particular, Facebook allegedly has made key APIs available to third-party applications only on the condition that they refrain from developing competing functionalities and from connecting with or promoting other social networking services. The complaint alleges that Facebook has enforced these policies by cutting off API access to blunt perceived competitive threats from rival personal social networking services, 
mobile messaging apps, and other apps with social functionalities. For example, in 2013, Twitter launched the app Vine, which allowed users to shoot and share short video segments. In response, according to the complaint, Facebook shut down the API that would have allowed Vine to access friends via Facebook. The lawsuit follows an investigation by the FTC's Technology Enforcement Division, whose staff cooperated closely with a coalition of attorneys general under the coordination of the New York State Office of the Attorney General. Participating attorneys general include Alaska, Arizona, Arkansas, California, Colorado, Connecticut, Delaware, the District of Columbia, Florida, Guam, Hawaii, Idaho, Illinois, Indiana, Iowa, Kansas, Kentucky, Louisiana, Maine, Maryland, Massachusetts, Michigan, Minnesota, Mississippi, Missouri, Montana, Nebraska, Nevada, New Hampshire, New Jersey, New Mexico, New York, North Carolina, North Dakota, Ohio, Oklahoma, Oregon, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, Tennessee, Texas, Utah, Vermont, Virginia, Washington, West Virginia, Wisconsin, and Wyoming. The commission vote to authorize staff to file for a permanent injunction and other equitable relief in the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia was 3-2. to two. The Federal Trade Commission works to promote competition and protect and educate consumers. If you'd like to hear more information about this filing, you can visit ftc.gov. Google's CEO, Sindar Pichai, apologizes over the handling of AI ethics researcher Timnit Gebru's departure and says he will investigate. In a memo that was sent out company-wide today, Sundar Pichai said he would investigate the events and work to restore trust. Why this matters. Gebru's exit has provoked anger and consternation within Google, as well as in academic circles, with thousands of people signing an open letter urging Google to re-examine its practices. In the note, Pichai acknowledged the depth of the damage done by the company's actions and said the company would look at all aspects of the situation, but stopped short of saying the company made a mistake in removing Gebru. Quote, I've heard the reaction to Dr. Gebru's departure loud and clear. It seeded doubts and led some in our community to question their place at Google, end quote. Quote, I want to say how sorry I am for that, and I accept the responsibility of working to restore your trust, end quote. Gebru left Google last week in what the company characterized as resignation, but Gebru says it was firing. Google had refused to give permission for Gebru and other Google researchers to attach their name or the company's name to an AI ethics paper that had been accepted for publication. In response, Gebru sent her superiors an email with several demands and said that if those conditions couldn't be met, she would work out a timeline for her to leave Google with minimal disruption to her team. Instead, Google abruptly said it was accepting her resignation and cut off her access to internal email. 
What's interesting is that while Pachai's memo strikes a contrite tone, it's unclear how far it will go to addressing the significant upset within Google's ranks, especially among those concerned with its commitments to diversity and academic freedom. Responding on Twitter, Gabru and others dismissed the memo as not addressing the core issues around her ouster and failing to take responsibility for the active steps taken by the company and its executives to create the situation. Quote, I see no plans for accountability, and there was further gaslighting in the statement, end quote. This was a quote by Timnit Jebru. She said in a tweet, adding in another tweet, that the memo, quote, does not say I'm sorry for what we did to her and it was wrong. I see this as I'm sorry for how it played out, but I'm not sorry for what we did to her yet. Open AI policy director Jack Clark said, quote, I typically stay out of stuff like this, but I'm absolutely shocked by this email. It uses the worst form of corporate writing to present Gebru's firing as something akin to a weather event, something that just happened. But real people did this, and they're hiding. In Pachai's full memo, this is um, actually a memo that was directly sent out to the company. Hi, everyone. One of the things I've been most proud of this year is how Googlers from across the company came together to address our racial equity commitments. It's hard, important work, and while we're steadfast in our commitment to do better, we have a lot more to learn and improve. An important piece of this is learning from our experiences, like the departure of Dr. Timnit Gebru. I've heard the reaction to Dr. Gebru's departure loud and clear. It seeded doubts and led some in our community to question their place at Google. I want to say how sorry I am for that and accept the responsibility of working to restore your trust. First, we need to assess the circumstances that led up to Dr. Gebru's departure, examining where we could have improved and led a more respectful process. We will begin a review of what happened to identify all the points where we can learn considering everything from de-escalation strategies to new processes we can put in place. Jeff and I have spoken and are fully committed to doing this. One of the best aspects of Google's engineering culture is our sincere desire to understand where things go wrong and how we can improve. Second, we need to accept responsibility for the fact that a prominent black female leader with immense talent left Google unhappily. This loss has had a ripple effect through some of our least represented communities who saw themselves and some of their experiences reflected in Dr. Gebru's. It was also keenly felt because Dr. Gebru is an expert in an important area of AI ethics that we must continue to make progress on. Progress that depends on our ability to ask ourselves challenging questions. It's incredibly important to me that our Black women understand and underrepresented Googlers understand and know that we value you and you do belong at Google. And the burden of pushing us to do better should not fall on your shoulders. 
We started a conversation together earlier this year when we announced a broad set of racial equity commitments to take a fresh look at all of our systems from hiring and leveling to promotion and retention and to address the need for leadership accountability across all of these steps. The events of last week are a painful but important reminder of the progress we still need to make. This is a top priority for me and Google Leads, and I want to commit and recommit to translating the energy that we've seen this year into real change as we move forward into 2021 and beyond. That's it. That was the full memo from CEO's Google CEO, Sundar Pichai. iPhones can now automatically recognize and label buttons and UI features for blind users. Really cool stuff. Apple has always gone out of its way to build features for users with disabilities, and VoiceOver on iOS is an invaluable tool for anyone with vision impairment, assuming every element of the interface has been manually labeled. But the company just unveiled a brand new feature that uses machine learning to identify and label every button, slider, and tab automatically. Screen recognition, available now in iOS 14, is a computer vision system that has been trained on thousands of images of apps in use, learning what a button looks like, what icons mean, and so on. Such systems are very flexible depending on the data you give them, They can become expert at spawning cats, facial expressions, or, as in this case, the different parts of a user interface. The result is that in any app now, users can invoke the feature, and a fraction of a second later, every item on screen will be labeled. And by every, they mean every. After all, Screen readers need to be aware of everything that a sighted user would see and be able to interact with, from images to common icons and context-specific ones like menus that appear just above everywhere. The idea is not to make manual labeling obsolete. Developers know best how to label their own apps, But updates, changing standards, and challenging situations, like in-game interfaces, for instance, can lead to things not being as accessible as they could be. In a quote from Apple, quote, We looked for areas where we can make inroads on accessibility, like image descriptions. In iOS 13, we labeled icons automatically, Screen recognition takes it another step forward. We can look at the pixels on screen and identify the hierarchy of objects you can interact with. And all of this happens on device within tenths of a second. It wouldn't have been possible just a couple of years ago. The state of machine learning and the lack of a dedicated unit for executing it meant that something like this would have been extremely taxing on the system, taking much longer and probably draining the battery all the while. But once this kind of system seemed possible, the team at Apple got to work prototyping it with the help of their dedicated accessibility staff and testing community. Quote, voiceover has been the standard bearer for vision accessibility for for so long. 
If you look at the steps in development for screen recognition, it was grounded collaboration across teams, accessibility throughout our partners in data collection and annotation, AI, machine learning, and of course, design. We did this to make sure that our machine learning development continued to push toward an excellent user experience, end quote. It was done by taking thousands of screenshots of popular apps and games and then manually labeling them as one of several standard UI elements. The labeled data was fed to the machine learning system, which soon became proficient at picking out those same elements on its own. But it's not as simple as it sounds. As humans, we've gotten quite good at understanding the intention of a particular graphic or bit of text, and so often we can navigate even abstract or creatively designed interfaces. It's not nearly as clear to a machine learning model, and the team had to work with it to create a complex set of rules and hierarchies that ensure the resulting screen reader interpretation makes sense. The new capability should help make millions of apps more accessible or just accessible at all to users with vision impairments. You can turn this feature on by going to accessibility settings, then voiceover, then voiceover recognition, where you can turn on and off image, screen, and text recognition. It would not be trivial to bring screen recognition over to other platforms like the Mac, so don't get your hopes up for that just yet. But the principle is sound. Though the model itself is not generalized to desktop apps, which are very different from mobile ones, perhaps others will take on that task. The prospect of AI-driven accessibility features is only just beginning to be realized. It's time for your weekly tech tip. This tech tip is for all of the iPhone users out there. And today I'm going to be focusing on the Apple Wallet feature. If you haven't opened the Wallet app on your phone, take a look at it. It's a black icon with a little um, wallet looking interface in the center and it's titled Wallet. And what's cool about this is that you can actually save those little plastic cards that you get from retailers in this wallet without having to carry them around on your keychain, which is really cool. So for example, in my Apple wallet, I have my, my debit card, my credit card, so I can use Apple Pay whenever I have the ability to do that. I also have my, my Panera card, my car insurance card, my Walgreens card, my Starbucks card, my Sephora card, a couple of unique IDs, and my last boarding pass for my last flight that I took for Southwest, which I'm going to remove now. <laughs> but I, what I love about this is that I don't have to carry around those plastic cards anymore on my keychain. I have everything I need in one place, and it's easier for me to access instead of fumbling around trying to find the specific app for Walgreens or, or CVS on my phone. So if you want to add specific cards to your Apple wallet, 
What you'll have to do first is actually download the app of the institution itself. So for my car insurance, I've had to download the State Farm app. And from there, it asks me if I'd like to add my car insurance verification to my Apple wallet. So it does require a little bit of setup work up front, but it's honestly well worth it in regards to the time that you'll save in the long run of being able to quickly access those reward cards and those pieces of information that you use on a daily basis. If you want to take a look at the settings for your Apple wallet, you can go to settings. And from here, there's an option that says a wallet and Apple Pay. And you can choose to modify the payment cards that you have or the identification cards that you have within here. I hope you found this tech tip useful. Let me know what you think. I'd love to hear how you incorporate using Apple Wallet in your everyday life. If you enjoyed today's episode of Coffee and Code, head on over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. It's very much appreciated, and it helps other listeners find podcasts that might be interesting to them. I'll actually be doing a giveaway at the end of 2020, and anyone who has submitted a rate or review will be automatically entered to win. Stay tuned for more details, and thank you for listening to Coffee and Code. 